This is a Clark University podcast. It's definitely easy to tell a story about American politics that is profoundly scary, right? We're at a point in our history where just the whole idea of democracy is being is, is up for debate. Um, and we've, at the same time, got all these existential crises to deal with, you know, climate change, other kinds of things. We have the biggest wealth gap in our country that we've had in a century. Robert Boatwright is a professor of political science at Clark University. Days away from the midterm elections, the economy and inflation are among the chief issues driving voters to the polls. But so is what Boatwright calls general nervousness about democracy, particularly from Democrats. It's expected that after November 8th, Republicans will be in control of the House. We're going to be in for a couple years of investigations of the Biden administration, battles over the debt limit and whether the government should go into default. It's going to be an ugly couple of years. And I I don't think there are many people who think that that's something we can avoid. The Senate is really up for grabs. It's hard to know what's going to happen there. No matter what happens, uh, the Senate is going to be basically ungovernable. It's hard to imagine a Republican House getting much legislation at all through the Senate. Even if they did, Biden would uh, would veto it. But control of the Senate matters a lot in terms of appointments, uh, court vacancies, and so on. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. What I've tried to tell my students is that we've we've had almost normal politics for the last couple of years, and it's hard to it's hard to appreciate that stuff while it's happening. It's hard to find a lot of Americans who said earlier this year, sometime last year, like, thank goodness, you know, things are the way they are. But uh, we're in for a kind of chaotic time over the next couple of years. Historically, uh, this has worked to the advantage of uh, presidents. That is, Barack Obama was not super popular before the 2010 election. He became more popular after that election because he had Congress sort of as a foil, somebody to fight against. Uh, The same thing happened to Bill Clinton uh, after the 1994 election. So in some ways, it could uh, have consequences for the 2024 election. But it means that our government is really not going to be able to solve any any major problems. And there are some problems that we're facing right now that are not traditionally partisan issues. It's, it's hard to predict, for instance, how support for Ukraine is going to be affected by having a Republican Congress. I think there will be the sort of natural partisan desire to push back against the president. But on the other hand, the Republican Party is very split about how we how we handle things in Ukraine. So it's hard to imagine a Republican story coming up about how we ought to do things differently. Boatwright used the term almost normal politics. I asked him how he would describe normal politics. You know, there's a thing they call the textbook Congress, right? The way Congress normally works, the way legislation tends to get passed. That's been gone for decades. Um, the way legislation generally is supposed to progress through Congress is that committees are supposed to write bills on kind of discrete policy matters, and Congress is supposed to produce a relatively large number of pieces of legislation. Congress hasn't done that for a long time. What we've seen during the Biden presidency is two or three omnibus bills that can, you know, basically every Democratic priority packed into one thing. So with the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, that was not really inflation, right? That was a lot of ideas about uh, climate change policy, health policy, all sorts of things. But Democrats in the House knew that that was their one chance to pass a piece of legislation. So 
in one sense, American politics hasn't been normal for a very long time. It's you have to go back uh, to you know the early Bush years to find Congress passing you know, appropriations bills in a normal way, passing debt bills in a normal way. But what I do mean is that you know we wake up in the morning and we don't think about what the president has done, right? We don't get diverted every day by some crazy tweet or something like that. We're able to go about our lives. So. I guess I'm using normally, you know, not in like a scientific sense or anything like that, but just to say that politics should not be the thing that preoccupies us all the time. It should not be the case that on any given day, the president can draw our attention to something you know, radically different than what we would normally be thinking about. So we've, we've by and large been able to do that for much of the Biden presidency. And I don't know that that's something that'll continue that much longer. Boatwright carefully studies primary elections, which typically reveal who has the advantage heading into the general election. But this year, contests were more competitive than usual. If you go all the way back to, say, 2010, Republicans had contentious primaries because Republicans thought, well, we're going to gain a lot of seats in 2010. So there's more competition in the vulnerable seats. And in the case, say, of Republican moderates that year, you've got all these fired up conservatives who just happen to live in a district with like a moderate Republican, right? So they train their anger on them. So for most of the past, I would say half a century or more, primary competition has really been a function of what people expected about the general election. That's really changed, I think, very, very recently in the past few years, right? Republicans are going to win a few seats in 2022, but it's not going to be a tidal wave. But if you look at Republican primaries, they've been way, way more competitive than is the norm. And in primary after primary, what you see is the people who have the elite support, the people who have the support of, say, uh, Senator McConnell or uh, Kevin McCarthy in the House. People have support from the kinds of super PACs that tend to support Republicans who they think have a shot at winning the election. These people are not winning their primaries. So Republicans... I think in some ways they're hurting themselves because they've chosen a lot of candidates who are problematic in the general election. They're going to lose some seats because of this. And it also means that Congress will be very hard to govern because you'll get a lot of people showing up in Congress who don't know, owe anything to the Republican Party leadership. This has not quite happened to the Democrats, but you know there are signs out there that Democratic elites similarly are starting to lose a little bit of control over the party. So that's like a huge story. And it's a huge story, I think, despite the fact that, again, if you look at the most likely result this year, it's a boring kind of typical result, right? The incumbent president presides over a problematic economy and loses a bunch of seats. So the outcome of the election in some ways looks like it should, but it masks, yeah, I think, a lot of dysfunction within the parties. Boatwright sees similarities between the political divisions of today and the politics of the late 19th century. So the late 19th century, in a lot of ways, it's boring to a lot of students. This is the era, I like to describe this to my students, this is the era of all those presidents with the big long beards that we don't remember. Um, that was a, that's an era that isn't taught a lot, say in high school classes, but that's an era where Democrats and Republicans are, you know, the country's almost evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. And we see some of the same problems we have now, right? Contested elections, arguments over fraud in elections, right? Parties start arguing about democracy itself. At the same time, America at that time is highly polarized. Polarization in Congress at the time looks a lot like it does now. And 
we're also at a point, you know, back in the 1890s where America is fundamentally unequal, right? We've got the rise of the railroads, banking interests, oil. We've got these sort of tycoons that are very similar to, say, you know, Google and Microsoft and so on. So it's an era that looks a lot like the current era. And the striking thing about it is we solved that problem uh, with the election of Theodore Roosevelt, the rise of the progressive movement. Uh, progressives did a lot of things that in hindsight were not good for America. But what they did do is they solved the problem of polarization between the parties. And they were able to very quickly enact a lot of changes uh, that affected the economy, that affected the balance of power, and that affected the way Americans thought about democracy. So I don't know that that's likely to happen anytime soon, but American history suggests that we do have a precedent for solving problems like what we see today. In one of Boatwright's courses called Fixing American Democracies, he challenges students to consider ways to reform American politics. I think the challenge in American politics is that political parties have really lost the ability to control nominations or to control the kind of legislation that Congress produces. And the funny thing about that is the era in American politics when parties were strongest, if you go all the way back to like the late 19th century, everybody hated them, right? Everybody at the time regarded political parties as corrupt and undemocratic. And everything that we've done to try to make parties more democratic, again, things like primary elections, these things have loosened the control of parties. They've made it harder for voters to choose. So I think there are a lot of ways in which political parties could be strengthened, but I don't have confidence that voters would support these kinds of things because they look undemocratic. And I think, uh, you know, an additional problem uh, with doing some of this is that at this point, our political parties are so weak that it's not clear that strengthening them is a good idea. So if I were to say to you hypothetically, let's give the Arizona Republican Party more power to choose its nominees, give them more power to finance the kinds of candidates that will be competitive in districts that are like 50% Republican, 50% Democratic. In theory, that sounds like a good idea, but what we've seen at the, in a lot of cases of a lot of state parties, again, parties in states like uh, Arizona, North Carolina, other states that have been battlegrounds over the past few years, is that the parties have also been taken over by people who are kind of extreme in their views, right? Who are not about winning elections, but are instead about scoring policy points. So in theory, it's a good idea to strengthen parties. And I think that's one thing we need to do is strengthen other kinds of political institutions, you know, the media, civic organizations, and so on. But at the same time, all of these organizations have been so weakened by political polarization that it's not clear that they would behave responsibly if you gave them the ability to do it. But I think my students, most of them understand that this is a 50-50 country and the people who disagree with you are out there. And it's really, it's a, a, an important career preparation skill when you're in college to figure out how do I talk over my differences with people, even if I haven't met them yet, right? I'm gonna do that. But they also, I think, get that this is, this is something that they can do as individuals. It's hard to think about changing political institutions, but it's a little bit easier to think about how you're going to have conversations with people who don't agree with you, that you can find ways to not make everything about political conflict. With the midterms days away, is it time to start thinking about 2024? Like other political scientists, Boatwright is hesitant to make predictions following the results of the 2016 election. 
Because it remains unclear if President Biden and former President Trump will run again, the Democratic and Republican fields are frozen. Well, Biden won in 2020 without actively campaigning. In a lot of ways, the 2020 election, you know, it worked to some of his strengths, right? Because he didn't have to be out there all the time. I think a lot of the stories about him, his frailty or whatever, you know, to some extent that's become the sort of media caricature that we see about other presidents, right? Obama was supposed to be this aloof guy. Um, you know, Mitt Romney was the out-of-touch rich guy and so on. Like the media comes up with stories to tell about candidates and it's hard for them to shed them. So I don't know that Biden is exactly the kind of guy that he's been portrayed as, but certainly the circumstances of the 2020 campaign made things very different uh, for Biden. Um, on the Trump side, you know, he's he's basically been campaigning uh, for the past several years, right? The big rallies and so on, I think, are likely to continue, you know, in some ways, regardless of whether he runs or not. Uh, so, you know, it'll be an ugly, polarizing election, probably no matter who runs, but certainly if it's Trump. To learn more about political science at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash political science. If you're part of the Clark community and want to join the conversation about the midterms online, use hashtag ClarkVotes. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark!